From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Roger Martin's terrific new book, When More Is Not Better, proposes tangible suggestions for broadening the economic gains from democratic capitalism. He critiques the concentration of wealth and power, the decades of what he calls America's obsession with economic efficiency have generated, proposing tangible measures for business leaders, politicians, educators, and citizens to pursue. Welcome to WLAI, the podcast of the Lean Enterprise Institute. I'm your host, Tom Ehrenfeld. And in this conversation, I nudge Roger to explore lean-adjacent measures that complement his message. In other words, what internal operational approaches might be considered in concert with his policy-based and systematic suggestions? Welcome to the LAI podcast. It is my just a great honor to be speaking with Roger Martin, a renowned management thinker, former dean of the Rotman School of uh, Management, and author of the new book, When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency. Welcome, Roger. It's great to be with you, Tom. Yeah. So um, I think it best, please, let's kick it off. Uh, with you giving me a short summary of the main um, point of your book, and then I, I, I have a handful of follow-ups. Sure. Uh, the point of the book is is to help people understand that uh, America had a successful run, becoming an ever more efficient uh, country with the rising productivity that that caused uh, the average American to do much better over the, over the many years until such point as America became the world's richest consequentially sized country, um, and this was a formula that worked for 200 years uh, from 1776 to 1976. But then something changed uh, because the success formula of the average family or the median family in America advancing fairly smartly in most years stopped. Uh, it, it actually ground to a halt in a way that I think Americans are only now feeling. And uh, this is an exploration of why, why did that happen? Uh, and the answer uh, most centrally that I, can, that I can point to is that we pushed efficiency, an obsession with efficiency so hard in such unproductive ways um, that we ended up changing the nature of the, the outcomes of economic activity. So rather than those outcomes flowing more broadly so that that, that middle-class families could move ahead, uh, the economic outcomes are now being channeled to the tail of the distribution, the upper tail of the distribution, which means that the economy is still growing and growing quite strongly, but the payoff to that is going to the, the 1% to a disproportionate extent, so much so that that's uh, stagnating the, the middle incomes. And 
what I think is necessary for a very healthy America and a healthy democratic capitalist uh, society is that the 51st percentile voter who's going to determine, you know, who's in who's in charge, feels that they're moving ahead. And I think that's no longer happening. And the electorate is getting kind of fidgety and nervous. Uh, and this book is about how we can how we can change that so that they become more comfortable again with the idea of the kind of uh, broad-based prosperity that democratic capitalism can promise. So one of the kind one of the primary countermeasures you suggest is a reframing of how people view our economy um, from a machine to a complex adaptive system something that's, uh, you know, there's three elements to that, that it's more than the sum of its parts, that the relationship between inputs and outputs is not linear, and that it continuously adapts. Simply taking that as a starting point, re, again, framing the way that people uh, think and make decisions in that context would accrue some positive, uh, you know, some benefits. In, in as you lay out, can you kind of clarify what you mean by that? Like, what are tangible ways of thinking and approaches that uh, business leaders, business managers um, can adopt to counteract this problem, this kind of brokenness of, of democratic capitalism that you diagnose? Well, sure. So, for example, if you think the economy or a business, both, uh, is a machine, you're more inclined to say, well, well, we can break that into pieces. So if you're a business, we can break that into manufacturing and marketing and, uh, uh, and sales. And, and we'll, we'll just tell each of them to optimize their, their piece of the machine and, and drive the greatest possible efficiency in their uh, uh, part of the machine. And then when it adds up, it'll just naturally add up to uh, what we want. Um, you know, no, it doesn't. Um, what often happens is, is uh, in one piece of that, that uh, you know, siloized machine, they do something that is damaging to the uh, the next part of the machine, and it's because it's a system that you have to think about that more more holistically. Um, so. If you're Izzy Sharp and you're the, the founder and CEO of the Four Seasons Hotel chain, you would say things because he thinks more like a complex adaptive system. He says, if I want to have my guests treated a certain way, you know, the only way I'm going to be able to do that is to treat my employees the way I want them to treat their guests. And then they'll be strongly inclined to do that. So rather than saying, the customer service is completely separate from uh, employee uh, uh, treatment. Uh, all of our HR policies, he says, no, they're connected uh, completely in, in this very uh, systemic way. And so that's what we have to think about is, is how, to, how to keep the whole in mind. Yes, we have to work on the parts. Somebody actually has to figure out what to pay them and what, you know, what, uh, uh, you know, what their working hours are and, and the like. But we can't, we can't ignore the connection to the whole while working on the, on the parts. 
Um, and same and same in in government. I mean, we have we have labor economists, uh, you know, uh, trade economists, uh, antitrust economists. They they all they all go to Washington and say, you know, do this. Uh, and if you listen to them, without thinking about the, how it relates to it, you're going to get the kind of crazy quilt of policies we we currently have. And when it doesn't add up to what we thought it it should add up to, we shouldn't be so surprised uh, because we have taken a system. And acted as if you can split it apart and reassemble it. Hmm. One question I have, I have is, is again kind of details on specific countermeasures. Like if 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 you uh, say that one fundamental change has to do with a shift towards seeing systems and avoiding um, point optimization solutions. Um, what are ways that people who buy into this argument can act to uh, start to make granular operational changes to to make it happen? Well, I I, th- I think it's not actually that that hard, right? It's it's simply to ask a question uh, each time you tweak a part of the dial. So if you're working on some granular, as you say, some granular thing, you should just stop uh, stop uh, before you take the action you're planning and ask the question, you know, what else might this influence? Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, will you be able to figure uh, uh, everything out? No. That's why they call it complex, right? Because, because, because you, you won't necessarily know, but you'll have a better shot of, of doing it. The other thing, the other thing I would say is, is, is the adaptive part of it says, be careful of assuming that it's going to work out the way you uh, plan it to work out and will always work out uh, uh, that way. You know, mm-hmm. systems adapt, right? And, and unless you take into account the fact that they will adapt, you will be sad. Right. And so you can say, well, you know, it's 2001 too. We've had a recession. We'd like to keep interest rates down so that, uh, uh, so that people, you know, mortgage rates will be lower. And so the housing, uh, uh, kind of industry will do, do, uh, do fine. Um, and you, and, and if you don't imagine that, well, maybe there are going to be people who are going to jump in and adapt to that situation and start giving a kind of a subprime mortgage just to everybody, regardless of whether they've got a job or have ever had a job or ever will get a job. Uh, and then, and then uh, off you go off a, off a, a cliff uh, in uh, 2008, nine, you know, that's, that's simply not thinking that anybody will adapt their behavior to the change you've made. So, I think a thing that that executives can uh, can do and politicians can do is just assume that there's going to be adaptation of a sort that they don't like uh, to whatever they do, no matter how brilliantly designed it is, and recognize that they'll have to tweak and tweak and tweak. I'm going to kind of shift gears and, and, and make a case for lean, which is something I know a little bit about, yes. which is a quality system evolved from Toyota production system, and which does have a, a clear lineage in the works of um, Dr. Deming. Mm-hmm. And kind of push on this notion of adaptation. So my argument would be that adaptation isn't enough. 
that it has to be adaptation for the good. So ad adaptation that is better, striving towards perfection. And one of the aspects of lean that just fascinates me is the number, or, or to be more clear, Toyota production system. Let's actually ground it in, in a very uh, granular uh, company with detailed practices. They embed mechanisms for learning in the daily work based on a clear observation and reflection on the work being done. Toyota um, has these very prescribed practices that become habits in the minds of every person doing the work in um, rooting out waste, eliminating waste. And, and you know, that is, a, 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 what one could say that's a, a form of efficiency. Uh, but in this context, I think it's very humanistic and based on the notion that asking anybody to do work that is not necessary and providing value to the customer is disrespectful and, and inhumane. And that the process of generating this kind of actionable knowledge about whether current work practices conform to standard work, defined as the best known way of doing the work, and instilling a culture where they um, have a process for exploring why there's a gap between what we're doing and what we believe is the way we should be doing it, um, is a kind of dramatic and uh, powerful built-in mechanism for adaptation, aka learning. So. This triggers any number of questions, but um, wh what do you think are tangible ways for companies to leverage the power of organizational or what I'd call operational learning? Well, I mean, it, it's, I guess what you've described, I think, is the treating, like that Toyota, uh, to me, treats the production of an automobile is a complex adaptive system. It's a social system uh, that is not something you can break into, into, uh, into pieces. You've got to think holistically. So why do you have lifetime employment, right? Why, you know, why would you need that? Well, so that people can learn all their lives and uh, at at uh, at Toyota and and get ever better at it. Uh, couldn't you just do it with you know kind of uh, random employees? No, you can't. You have to you have to have a certain way of treating the employees so that you can develop a culture. So that on the assembly line you can do this and and you've got the end and cord that you can pull. All of those things are thought of in in from at least I'm not the expert. You are on the Toyota production uh, system, but. Yeah, all of them speak to the idea of being a system that's pretty complex so that you better work it and work it and work it. I do not hear Toyota going for grand master strokes. How we're going to change everything the way we do it. We're going to build a factory of the future suddenly and it's going to be completely different. No, it's from what I can tell, tweak, 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 tweak from morning till night, five days a week, uh, yeah, 52 weeks uh, a year. So to me, that's, that's the smart way to go about doing things. The other thing is that uh, I think of Toyota as having listened to W. Edwards Deming, um, who, said, who said you should drive out, uh, out kind of waste, 
but he also said there's an optimal level of slack in the system. And much of the world who's listened to Deming hasn't listened to him carefully enough because they view any kind of, any kind of uh, slack as waste. Whereas Toyota, I think, properly listens to the great man or listened to the great man who said, get rid of stuff that is truly wasteful that you cannot find anything valuable about, but keep in some things that other people would call waste uh, that you think are valuable. So other people would have considered during during uh, the financial, the global uh, financial crisis, uh, it was wasteful to have all those extra employees on the payroll. You should have fired them. Uh, Toyota would say, no, our great uh, uh, sensei, uh, W. Edwards Deming, would say, mm, you might want to keep them around doing useful things uh, because you're, you, will have, you will have just flushed down the toilet enormous, enormous value if you would, uh, if you would uh, dispense with them like the other auto OEMs uh, would have during that time. Well, uh, in all due respect, I'm going to disagree with one thing and yeah. that your, your book kind of gives Deming short shrift. You list him in the uh, line of thinkers of uh, uh, Ricardo and uh, Frederick Taylor. And you present him as kind of proof of a uh, a mechanistic model of efficiency. I, I, no, no, I don't. I just, I, I just, okay. I just don't. I mean, I, I present him, in my view, uh, I present four thinkers: Smith, Ricardo, right. uh, Taylor, and Deming, and I view one of them as being kind of fundamentally misinformed uh, and the other three being misinterpreted in ways that uh, none of them ever intended um, so I I, I, I don't I, I mean I, I think it's I just think it's factually correct that people have taken a lot of Smith a lot of Ricardo and a lot of Deming and done things that would make each one of them turn over in their graves uh, with Smith, it was—I forget the title of his other book—that was far more theory, theory of moral sentiments. Yeah, that had the much more powerful and salient ideas, I believe. Well, I think they both had uh, both had them, but people just even, even if you if, even if you had didn't have the theory of moral sentiments and all you had is the well, wealth of nations, you just didn't say stuff that he's you know purported to have said and and uh, and you know. David Ricardo did not write a treatise on how we should go for free trade in all all commodities uh, in all countries all the time, right? And and instead people just people just took those. So so no, I I, I think I I think I properly position uh, uh, Deming uh, would be my would be my view. <laughs> it's all good, you know. <laughs> we got to mix it up, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I don't. I, I don't. I don't mind, but I, I mean, I think I, I, you know, I, I just do love, I do love his, his story because um, I, I, you know, I think we used to have these these thinkers that that thought holistically about the the subject, and they've given away uh, to these extremely narrow. Uh, uh, 
narrow thinkers. And uh, I'll always remember I met George Stigler, great, uh, great uh, Nobel laureate. Uh, and I, he, I was actually visiting at, at his condo in, uh, in Chicago at the time. And uh, he showed me his Nobel uh, uh, medal, uh, which was very nice, nice uh, of him to do. But he, but he said, see this? He said, I got this, but I couldn't get tenure at a, at a, in an economics department today. Right. And, and that was because he thought about bigger kind of uh, questions in a bigger way. And that's not, that's so almost not allowable uh, anymore. And so I consider Deming to be in from that great, that great era where that was what people valued. Again, he popularized his ideas in uh, Japan. Japan. Yeah, yeah, and had it had it come back, you know, many years later to to his uh, to his home country. Um, I mean, uh, one I deeply admire Deming and his writing, and it's it uh, it's a precursor to someone like Peter Senge and Chris Archeris and the organizational learning crowd. Um, systems dynamics thinkers, yep. um, because Deming was very much about um, optimizing the system rather than um, optimizing any single point within it. Um, but my, my dad taught at MIT actually. He was the oh, wow. trying to teach um, sustainability. Oh, wow. yeah, good for him. Let's get to let let's let's dive deeper into this notion of efficiency because you kind of hold it up as a straw man, a culprit. And I do think that some of the most famous, popular <clears throat> and powerful, say management thinkers have fueled their success on uh, suboptimal models of efficiency. Uh, Mike Jensen, we know his writing uh, that kind of provide an intellectual foundation for uh, LBOs and kind of um, asset stripping, and uh, honestly, Michael Porter and his you know five-factor framework for competitive advantage, which I, you know I, to me feels like a method of identifying and harvesting temporary temporary monopolies. And my question is, how do you countermeasure these? prevailing um, competitive approaches that are deeply founded in these unhealthy models of efficiency. And first, please reiterate what you mean by efficiency. My question is loaded to be sure, but. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, my, my most specific complaint about efficiency is, is bad proxies for it. Okay. Right. So, so I, I do think efficiency has been uh, has been pushed to 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 great an extent. But it's when it when it goes totally over the edge. It's when you say, well, efficient uh, labor costs. Uh, we'll measure that on the basis of how low labor rates can we can we uh, uh, offer right. or efficient staffing. How much can we get rid of the last hour person hour on the on the store floor, uh, uh, the like? So, so for for me, the the extreme is is saying you know what uh, 
you know, we're going to use these very lame uh, of, views of, uh, of efficiency or definitions of efficiency. Because again, if, if we went back to Edward Stemming, he, wants, he, he wanted to have an efficient uh, production uh, system. But it was a very, very sophisticated view in my in my view of what's efficient, efficient. And he and I would argue that he would say, you when you get to the edge, edge of that that are are you are you you know kind of are you pushing it too hard? Step back, step back, because I have to make sure the system, the system uh, uh, prevails. Um, so, so I I I, I do think. Um, you know, there, as I say, it was just sort of a fascination. It's, it's, it's. Let's let's just keep pushing this and see if we can push it uh, uh, further and further. Can we make capital markets even more efficient if if we if we judge bid ask spreads as the measure of of efficiency? And so, oh, let's consolidate them into one big pool uh, where everybody trades in that in that one big pool, and then the, the bid ask spreads will be the the narrowest possible. And oh, yes, if we allowed people to trade all these complex derivatives to, uh, products, oh, that 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 narrows the spreads even more, and and transactions are ever more efficient. And then and then you get the global financial crisis, right? right. You, these massively efficient systems are 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 fragile. And it's like, uh, as I point out, the, the cute example kind of of the almonds in California, right? Uh, uh, it's super efficient to grow almonds, almonds there. But then there's things you've got to do uh, to, uh, uh, to support that. You've got to ship honeybees in from across the entire country for a two-week pollination period. And then you wonder why they die on the way back, uh, back uh, home and, and you have a you know, crisis in that. Well, it's because you don't know what the impacts are of that super hyper-efficiency. Uh, so I, I, sorry? What you point out on that point is that the downside to greater and greater efficiency is a and you reach a threshold where the system becomes less resilient yes. as a result of it. And and what 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 did you mean by that? Well, it would be like like the uh, capital markets. You know, they demonstrated a complete lack of resilience uh, in two thousand and eight nine. Right? They melted down, even though they were the most efficient by many measures that they've ever ever been. Uh, but what you did in order to make them efficient is to have all of these actors in the markets, all assuming that uh, that uh, uh, everything would be just fine. Uh, and then one thing, one thing went out. It was the monoline insurers who were insuring uh, uh, credit default swaps, um, and uh, and they were set up to be these these. The single purpose, that's why they're called monoline. They had this one single purpose that they, they had. They didn't do anything other than other than that. So they had no other businesses that could protect them if their core business had a had a hiccup in it. The core business has a hiccup. They all go down. Then a whole bunch of people who depend on them go down. And then the whole uh, uh, the financial markets uh, crater. That, that's just a classic example of nobody was asking the question is really one more increment of efficiency completely costless to the resilience, right? No, it was like, it's just good. Remember, the doctrine is more efficiency is better, right? And that's the doctrine that, that, uh, that I want to get away from. Is efficiency bad? No, but I would want people to think, what is the price 
of that next increment of efficiency and am I near the margins now I'm out at the edge uh, and it is and it is time to uh, uh, to turn back yeah. and and I think you see th this when you reach like planetary boundaries right it's it's uh, when when you do have uh, customers lining up at your cash registers and getting frustrated and looking like mm, you know you probably have too few uh, you know staff in those hours so maybe in general you could get away with that but now you've got some people who are mad who might not come back uh, uh, the next time or that person who can't find anybody in the store to find to help them find the thing they're looking for and they don't come back the next time you get you get warning signs of of we are getting close to planetary boundaries uh and uh and and that's the time when you've got to say i'm interested in the system uh and i'm going to protect the system rather than rather than wow i think we can push it a little farther don't you and what deming and jim womack and others point out is a fundamental belief in at toyota and lean um, that the uh, problems and errors are created by processes, not people. To mm -hmm. blame the processes, to look at yeah. how things are designed and understand how individuals are forced to um, manage conflicts that are unmanageable. And yes. um, they invariably get the blame for things that are designed in. Yeah. And you'll notice I am consistent with that in the book, with one exception. I will make one ex uh, one exception. So I don't. There, there's no evil people in the in the book, right? Yeah. Uh, right. I say it's it's uh, it's kind of nobody's nobody's fault, uh, and nobody can solve this by themselves. I do make one exception. That's activist hedge funds. I, they're just they're just the living manifestation of evil on the planet. But <laughs> other than other than other than uh, that in the book, uh, yeah, I say. It's it's for me the enemy is slightly different than than processes. Maybe it's models. Okay. Uh, and in fact, for what it's worth, Tom, that's that is my life work. My life work is to tackle models that are producing the opposite of what we we as humanity wish, uh, and I try to replace them with better models. We'll be right back after this short message. Join hundreds of your Lean Thinking peers online at the second annual Virtual Lean Learning Experience, where you'll get actionable ideas and inspiration that will re-energize your Lean journey. Featuring a new money-saving, flexible pricing plan, a VLX Enterprise subscription gives you and everyone in your organization a new week-long live seminar each quarter plus 12 months of access to the growing archive of recorded seminars. Each seminar will feature at least six presentations from successful lean practitioners who are leading their industries. Learn more and register at lean.org slash VLX. That's lean.org slash VLX. Again, one of the things that, like, actually, I don't think I mentioned, I worked with uh, Peter Senge and the organizational learning crowd and really uh, steeped myself in, in, in what they were about, are about, and one of the reasons that Lean called out to me so strongly was this opportunity to learn about operational learning as opposed mm -hmm. to organizational learning mm -hmm. was the just huge appeal to me of these 
fundamental principles and methods of the system that generate knowledge, respect people, and automatically build in um, learning as the source of growth and adaptation. And I think these, you know, mechanisms, I think these are available to companies large and small. And I, I, you know, that's one thing I was reading your book for was uh, kind of advice and direction and ways that companies can uh, not mechanize, that's the wrong word, but put into place habits and practices that address the problem you've identified of the hazards of democratic capitalism. You know, uh, I, I think I'm re asking a question. It's like, what are what are tangible ways that people should think about changing habits, methods, tools to um, make progress in the the uh, kind of direction you you laid out? Well, I, I I would say that the single if if I could only give one piece of advice to any you know, executive uh, who is who is trying to trying to you know, kind of change uh, the way this works for the better. It's just to have the following stance in life uh, in everything they do, which is the stance of I have a view worth hearing, but I might be missing something. <laughs> that, it's as simple as that. If if in essence, when you say something to somebody else, you say it with that spirit, right? So you say what's on your mind, this is what I think, but then act as in a fashion of, but I might be missing something. So I would say to you, Tom, you know, this is, this is, this is what I think. I think it's efficiency and it's bad proxies for, for, for efficiency. Uh, but, you know, uh, you may see something from your lean background or whatever uh, that uh, could be uh, could be additive or different. Sure. Um, if you do that, um, what what you do is is you get access to stuff that you don't know. Right? You would tell me something I I don't know, which I can then incorporate into what I do know, and then hopefully it's better off. You'll sort of feel like hmm. This guy's kind of worth talking to because he's interested in what I have to say. He had an interesting point, interested in what I'm saying. Maybe I ought to respond in kind uh, rather than say, as any fool can plainly see, you, you should do this, Roger. Uh, it would be, well, here's a thought, Roger. Uh, to what extent uh, is that helpful? So that's it, it, it's the most powerful stance a person can take in the, in the world. Now, most people don't think it is. They mainly they think the most powerful stance is is as any fool can plainly see, blah, 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 right? You know, I'm right. Uh, and and I, since I'm assertive about my, my rightness, it means I'm a tough guy or a tough gal. Uh, and then, then I will get uh, farther, faster, because I'm right and tough. And I think brilliantly Chris Argerus demonstrated that that is the that will ensure that you're into single loop learning not double loop learning and you'll get stuck in in you know kind of defensive routines that you never get uh, out of absolutely and it's a it's a it's I don't know if I'd say counterintuitive but it's a it's a method of behaving it's a form mm -hmm. of behaving that's just not rewarded in general by existing cultural organizations no i don't agree with that 
Tom. I, 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 I honestly don't. I just don't think it's tried. And why not? Uh, bec because people are taught that you should assert your point of view so that it, it, it wins. Right. Uh, I mean, think about think it's just, I mean, just think about education. What, what do you get a, what do you get a check mark for? Asserting the right answer. And raising your hand first. Yes. Yes. To assert the right answer uh, first. And, uh, and, and if you get the wrong answer, you get a big red X. And so you producing on your own the right answer and asserting it to be the right answer is what you are taught from kindergarten uh, onward. And as, as, it, as it, your education advances, you are taught more and more how important it is to argue your, your point. Because instead of, you know, you don't have to argue that uh, two times two is four in, in, gr in grade one, you just say it. Uh, but in whatever your philosophy, you know, junior year kind of philosophy course, you have to whatever, read a book or, or two books and make an argument about what they, what they say. And so you've got to argue how right you are. Right, right. Um, so, so, so people just assume that's the way you're supposed to be. And they don't, don't realize that there's a way more powerful, uh, way to be. But then they blame others. They say, "Well, if I do that, I will get beaten up. I'll get beaten to uh, to pulp." And I and I and I, I I can't tell you how many times I've run this experiment with people to say, "Listen, all you have to do is start out with that stance for five minutes of the start of this tough meeting that you that you expect to uh, to to have. Five minutes where you go in with a I have a view worth hearing, but I might be missing something. Uh, and after five minutes, if they're beating the snot out of you, well." get your fists up and start pounding away uh, with your, your advocacy. And like virtually, not every time, but virtually every time they come back to me and say, that was the best co conversation I've ever had. I couldn't believe the quality of the conversation. We came up with some really nifty ideas. And I said, but I thought you thought the guy was a jerk. Well, no, 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 it turns out he wasn't at all. Actually, he was, you know, so, so it's, it's, it's simply people are, people are trained to be one way and they are scared, absolutely terrified to be any other way. And if you can convince them to try something else, uh, they, they learn that what they've been taught all their life is not helpful. Yeah. I want to respect your time. Let's just circle back for a last question about this basic theme you're tackling in your book about when more is not better. And um, I guess what have we, is there anything that we've not talked about you felt was important in uh, terms of, you know, basically fulfilling the promise of your book in helping people apply it to the problem that you've identified? Well, what, one thing I would just, uh, that we didn't really touch on is, is this, this idea that the, the, best way to make something better is not to seek perfection. Uh, and I think the lean folks would, would, uh, would I think agree, right? Which is, which is if you're seeking perfection, um, you're going to try grand strokes. You're going to try, you're going to, you're going to be frustrated. If instead you say, I'm just going to improve a little bit, just a little bit. 
this is like Warren Buffett and the power of compound interest, right? If you improve a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and you're always improving a little bit, you're going to get closer to perfection than by actually saying, I want the perfect uh, answer. Uh, and this is, this is the thing that I would, I would so much say for public policymakers. It's just knock it off. Like, stop trying to say, we have the all singing, all dancing answer to this, this, uh, this problem. And we're going we're gonna to fight about it for years and years and years and conference committees and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and whatever. And just say, you know what? We think we can put this tweak in place, and it'll and it'll uh, it'll improve it. Uh, and then when that seems to work, tweak it some more, and tweak it some more, and tweak it some more. Uh, Congress sets itself up for abject failure, and then gets all frustrated. Like Congress is all frustrated and 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 bullshy and and you know kind of feels put upon and everything now. And it's because they've set themselves up for failure. Yeah. yeah. No, I like that. And. I think there's echoes of a, a, a lean um, ethos of Kaizen, continuous improvement, of um, constantly raising the bar. Um, mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I, I want to wrap it up there. I want to remind people that your book is titled When More Is Not Better, Overcoming America's Obsession with Economic Efficiency by Roger Martin published by Harvard Business Review Press. I uh, get it. <laughs> and um, thanks, thanks for uh, taking the time, Roger. It was my pleasure, Tom. Anytime. Thanks so much to Roger Martin for his insights into these pressing questions regarding the future of our economy. Thanks also to John Cotter and to Pat Panchek from LAI for their work on this podcast. And of course, Thank you for listening to WLAI.